Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag in terms of what the theme is for today. We will be talking a great deal about God's grace and God's mercy. And these are terms that we often use uh, in uh, our talk, our dialogue about God. They come up in sermons. They come up in Bible study. In fact, you've seen those exact words uh, as you've studied through the scriptures. But I don't think that we often spend much time thinking about what these words mean. And we might have a general sense of what they mean, but uh, I figured, hey, a definition is always a good thing. So here's the definition for grace. Grace is giving someone something they don't deserve. Grace is giving somebody something good that they don't deserve. They're not getting it because they've earned it. They're getting it out of the goodness of the heart of the giver. For instance, if you promise your granddaughter that you'll buy her ice cream if she behaves, but when she doesn't, you give her ice cream anyway. You are extending grace. You're giving her something she didn't deserve, but out of your love and your compassion, you're giving it to her anyway. Mercy is, is similar, but kind of different. Mercy is not giving somebody something that they do deserve. So for instance, uh, I can think back rather um, vividly to moments in my childhood when my mother said, when we get home, you're getting the spanking and i'm thinking oh no is it going to be the hairbrush or the wooden spoon and those are the things that went through my head for that car ride home and as i'm preparing bracing myself for it my mom gives me a lesser punishment instead of the full punishment that i deserved that's mercy i know what i deserved but she did not give me as i deserved that's mercy and so by extending grace and mercy, you're not dealing with people according to what they deserve. You're dealing with them better than they deserve. It may be a good way to think about it. And throughout the scriptures, we see the grace and the mercy of God clearly and consistently portrayed. In fact, God desires not to deal with his people according to what they deserve. I'm going to say that again. And as believers in Christ, recipients of God's grace and mercy, I know that we know this to be true, that God desires not to deal with people according to what they deserve. Now, that may challenge many of our presuppositions. In fact, there are Christians and non-Christians that have a hard time wrapping their mind around the mercy and the grace about, of God. Uh, in fact, we tend to think we need to get ourselves together before coming to God, or he won't receive us, or he won't receive us warmly. We tend to doubt God's love or his ability to forgive because of the quantity or quality of our most grievous sins. Friends, there are people who have a hard time coming to faith in Jesus because they are afraid that God will not receive them because of just how much they've sinned. There are believers 
who have gone through seasons of sin, walking away from God. And the longer they do, the harder it is to come back because they have this picture of God in their mind and they think there's no way he wants them back. They doubt God's love or his ability to forgive because of how many sins or just how bad the sins were that they committed. We're prone to hide our struggles to put a mask over our moral ugliness, thinking that perhaps we could fool others and somehow also fool God into thinking that we're better than we are. I know when we kind of state it like that, it seems foolish, like, well, that's not gonna work, but we do it. That's a tendency that many of us, if not all of us have to some degree or another. The fact of the matter is that God has always been a God that desires to pour out grace and mercy. We're going to be working through two different passages of Scripture today. The first one is in Numbers chapter 21. So I encourage you to turn there. I'm going to set up the passage for us as you're turning there. But again, the first, first passage we're going to be in is Numbers chapter 21. And so this is Israel wandering in the wilderness between two pivotal events in their history. The rescue of from slavery in Egypt is the first thing and they're in this season between that and the entry into the promised land that God had promised and throughout Israel's history up to this point God has demonstrated many things about himself through his actions he's demonstrated his love He's demonstrated his faithfulness. He's demonstrated his power. He's demonstrated his desire to have a covenant with this people. He's demonstrated his grace and his mercy over and over. And so some of the events that have taken place prior to our passage today is God's rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, leading them across the Red Sea on dry ground, protecting them from Pharaoh and his army. God led them to sign to Mount Sinai and covenanted with them. They will be his people. They will be a kingdom and priests to serve him and to make him known. Uh, God gave the rules that established this covenant before them. He reminded them of the covenants he's made with them in the past with their forefathers. God has been good. As they're traveling through the wilderness, the wilderness, you know, and food and water is just not plentiful. It's not everywhere you go, but God brought food from nowhere. He brought, he brought manna out of nothing. He brought quail. He brought water, even from a rock. He, God did all of these things. He protected Israel from its enemies. And so at this point in Israel's history, this very people has seen God demonstrate who he is over and over again. Nevertheless, we read this in Numbers chapter 21 starting in verse four. Here's what it says. The Israelites traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. 
The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is a short little passage of scripture and one that I have to say is not unique in the sense that this pattern of Israel taking for granted or despising the good things of God and sinning against him or turning away from him, God bringing hardship, discipline on them, and then them crying out to God for mercy. And what does God do? But again and again and again, show his character by bringing grace and mercy upon this sinful people. In fact, if you had to pick probably the most prominent theme throughout the Old Testament, it's that. It's God's grace and mercy toward people who don't deserve it. And that's what we see here. God's covenant people, the ones that have experienced over and over again the goodness of God, sinned against him again. And God's punishment, God's discipline, what God brought, these venomous snakes among them, were exactly what they deserved. In fact, the truth of the matter, if we're being completely honest, is this, that what they truly deserved were the venomous snakes to go around them, to bite them, and they died, and that would be the end of the story. But it isn't the end of the story, right? We read a lot more than just that. In the midst of them receiving their just desserts, in the process of them receiving the consequence for their own sin, they call out to God, and God is merciful. That begs the question, why would they call out to God in this moment? They knew full well what they had done. We see that in their confession. We know full well that they would have died And yet we see that they call upon God, and I would argue that they call upon God because they know that God is a compassionate God who desires to pour out grace and mercy. They knew that if they called on God, there's a good chance that God would answer with life, with forgiveness. And that's exactly what happened. In response, God provided a remedy, a remedy, a way for them to be healed, a way for them to live instead of die. So let's let's think through the Israelites' response here to God's punishment. When the venomous snakes came, uh, they could have done any number of things. In fact, in our culture today, I wonder if they would have. But here's some of the things they could have done. They could have, when the venomous snakes came among them, they could have gotten angry at God. They could have shook their fist at God and they could have died. Right? They could have tried to mediate the situation themselves, okay? Instead of going to Moses and saying, we've sinned, we're sorry, please go to God on our behalf and ask for him to heal us. Instead of that, they could have tried to mediate the situation themselves, leveraging whatever medical knowledge they might have had in antiquity to try to avoid death uh, to no avail until they eventually died. But they didn't. Instead, they turned to God who, who, to seek mercy in the midst of their acknowledgement of their own sin. And this is key. They know who God is, and so they came for him seeking mercy. But they did so with an acknowledgement of where they've wronged and a desire to turn back to him. 
And when God provided a way out, a bronze snake, through which the Lord would bring healing, they could have, theoretically, avoided looking at it. Uh, in, in spite of God for bringing the venomous snakes, they could have just said, I'm not looking at that bronze snake. And they could have just enjoyed their just punishment and died. But they didn't. Instead, they were thankful for God's mercy in the face of their sin. They looked upon the bronze snake that was lifted up, and they were forgiven, and they were healed, and they were restored. And here's an important thing for us to understand. God desires to pour out grace and mercy, but only those who acknowledge their sin and turn to God for grace and mercy receive it. This is an important thing. I don't want you to miss it. I'm going to say again. We know through scripture, we know through experience that God is a God who desires to pour out grace and mercy. But only those who acknowledge their own sin and turn to God are recipients of that grace and mercy that God desires to pour out. Again, the Israelites could have had done any other response than what they actually did, but they turned to God in acknowledgement of where they've wronged him. They understood his grace and his mercy, and they received it from him. And only those who are willing to turn to God will receive that grace and mercy. If we ignore our sin and pretend it doesn't exist, we do not benefit from God's grace and mercy. If we act as though we don't have a problem, we don't receive the solution that God has provided. If we turn our back on God because we desire to continue in our sin, we also don't benefit from his grace and mercy that he desires to pour out. If we try to fix ourselves on our own terms to atone for our own sins or to, to perfect ourselves, to get right before coming to God, we do not benefit from God's grace and mercy. In fact, all such paths are futile. And yet we see people that we know doing this often. So how do we avail ourselves of God's grace and mercy? We acknowledge our sin and we turn to him. Perhaps an appropriate question at this juncture is this, because when we try to think of God, he's not just grace and mercy. He's not just love. He's not just compassion. What about God's justice? After all, God is perfectly gracious and he's perfectly merciful, but he's also perfectly just, right? Um, and if he wasn't, there'd be problems. In fact, think of it this way. If a confessed and evidenced murderer was standing smugly in a courtroom and it's clear to everybody, including the jury, that the person is guilty. And the judge just says, I want to go ahead and extend grace and mercy. You're free to go. Would we be okay with that? Even though that was an act of grace, it was an act of mercy. No, because it was a perversion of justice. It was an injustice. And that would bother us. We'd be demanding to know where is justice in the midst of this situation. So does God's desire to pour out grace and mercy negate God's justice? And we have an answer for that in Scripture. So please turn with me to John chapter 3, starting in verse 14. John 3, 14. 
The account we're about to read is between, uh, between uh, Nicodemus and Jesus, and this is the only gospel that includes this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And you're going to see how it begins in chapter 3, verse 14, by alluding back to the very thing we've already read. Here's what it says in John 3, 14 and following. Just as Moses lifted up the snake uh, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who, hates, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. In order to extend grace and mercy to you and to me without sacrificing justice, God sacrificed his son, Jesus, to take the due penalty for our sins upon himself. We see this in so many different places throughout Scripture. Uh, I'm going to give you just one example. This is from 1 John 2, 1 through 2. It'll be up on the screen. It says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In fact, we have Jesus talking about why he died. And Mark gives an account of the Last Supper, and he says that his death will be for sins. Paul writes often of Jesus' sacrifice as an atonement. And here in the first epistle of John, we see this very thing, that Jesus Christ, who's now with the Father, advocating for us, is also the one who was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. His death was for our sins. He took the due penalty. He took justice upon himself. In fact, where our NIV translation includes atoning sacrifice in verse 2, the word that it's interpreting is this, propitiation. That's a word you might not have heard before. It's probably a word you've never used in your life. It's just not part of our normal vocabulary. Um, and so we may not be familiar with it. However, in this context, it means, it means that Jesus appeased God's, judge, uh, God's justice, God's judgment for us. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie National Treasure. Anybody? We, my family got the chance to watch this again on uh, 4th of July. Um, it just seems to be a tradition to watch movies on the 4th of July that are somehow related to our nation or, uh, you know. So anyway, this was, a, this was a fun movie that we hadn't watched in several years, and so we watched it. Why am I bringing up National Treasure? 
Because if you're not familiar with the movie, or if you need a good reminding, the main character, played by Nicolas Cage, um, he breaks the law for what he deems to be a good reason. It's a protect the Declaration of Independence from a very bad man who would have otherwise destroyed it and been lost to history. And through this whole journey, adventure that he's on, uh, at the very end, Nick Cage's character surrenders to the FBI. And as he's kind of talking through this with the FBI agent, he says something to this effect that I'd really like not to go to jail. To which the FBI agent replies, somebody has to go to jail. And so in this movie, Nick Cage's character makes a deal to turn in the really bad guy who goes to jail instead. But it's this that I want to draw our attention to. The FBI agent's response, somebody has to go to jail. Something bad has taken place. The whole world knows it. Somebody has to pay the price. Justice has to be served. You can't turn the blind eye. Somebody has to go to jail, right? Justice has to be dealt to somebody. And when we look at the text of Scripture, when we look at what Jesus did, Jesus took our punishment so that we didn't have to. Jesus was the one who justice was dealt with, dealt to. In fact, we sang about it this morning. Ah, you probably didn't even realize. We sang this morning among our several songs we sung in Christ alone, and one of the verses says this, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. God's wrath against sin, God's justice, the just consequence of sin was paid for in full in Jesus so that we didn't have to. Because of his death, we live. And so this is what we see, that while God desires to pour out grace and mercy, he does so without sacrificing justice because justice was paid for. Justice was taken care of by Jesus on the cross. Verses John 3, 14 to 16, just as Moses lifted up the stake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In his dialogue with Nicodemus, Jesus is equating two very important events. And the first one we read about already, right? He's pointing back in Israel's history to an example of God's grace and mercy to his people, Israel. And he connects that with what God will soon be doing on the cross with Jesus. And so just as the Israelites who were dying as a consequence of their own sin against God, they could look at this golden at this bronze snake and live, and so now people who were spiritually dead as a consequence of their own sin could look to Jesus and live in the same way. Verses 17 and 18 of our John text says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Let's start with the first part. Let's start with verse 17 here, uh, because I think this is interesting. 
Here's what it says, all right? It says that God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. When in fact, Jesus is the one who will judge the world. So I don't know if that ever struck you before. In fact, if I'm being completely honest, as I'm reading John 3, 16 to 18, it's usually 17 that gets lost in the shuffle. Because, of course, John 3, 16 is such a beautiful promise, probably the most cited verse in all of Scripture, right? And then verse 18, you know, gives you the rub, right? Here's the, the choice. It's either this or this. God in his mercy has given you this. If you don't accept it, this. And we jump over sometimes, I think, verse 17. But 17 really packs a punch when you understand what it's saying. That God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus is the only one who could have. In fact, we know this because it is Jesus himself who will one day judge every single person. And scripture is clear on this in numerous places. Let me just give you two examples. John 5, 26, Jesus is talking. He says, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. And so the father has given Jesus himself, the son, the right, the authority to judge In fact, this is actually two promises in one because when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he's pointing to the Old Testament in Daniel chapter seven, which again is this person, the son of man, judging before the throne of God, judging the kingdoms of the world. We see this even in Acts 17, uh, verses 29 through 31. It says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, this is Paul talking in Athens. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, by the man he has appointed. Well, what man is that? Paul tells us. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Who was the one raised from the dead who God has appointed to judge all people? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If there was ever anybody who was going to come into the world to judge it, it to condemn it even for its sin, it was Jesus And this is important. If God desired to deal with us according to what we deserve, then Jesus, who's the judge of all of creation, would have been sent here to condemn us. That's the very reason for which he would have come. If God desired to deal with us according to what we deserved, he would have been sent to mete out the just consequences of our sin, which would not have been good for me and would not have been good for you. Maybe a better way to understand it is this. If God desired to deal with us according to what we deserve, he would not have sent Jesus at all 2,000 years ago. I say this because Jesus, at the end of time, one day in the future, will judge all of creation, including every single human person. That day is coming. It's unavoidable. It's going to happen. And so if that is going to happen in the future, then there is no point in him coming 2,000 years ago because judgment's going to happen, whether we like it or not, for every person who's ever lived on this earth. 
And if he had not come 2,000 years ago, every last person would have stood before Jesus one day guilty as charged. And they would have been condemned to hell for all of eternity, justly warranted because of their sin, their active rebellion against God. So it begs the question, if Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn, then why on earth did he come? He came to be lifted up like the snake in the wilderness. He came to be sacrificed as our atonement. He came to be our propitiation, to satisfy God's justice. Because God desires to pour out grace and mercy. But if the Israelites in the desert were bitten by the venomous snakes and did not look up at the bronze snake, they would have died, every last one of them. If people who are dead in their sins and separated from God do not look to Jesus, they will continue in their spiritual death and they will remain separated from God forever. The just consequence of their sin, which Jesus came to take, would remain on them. And that's what we see in, in verse 18, John 3, 18. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It is amazing to me how often this idea of Jesus being the way to God is depicted or understood in our culture around us. So often I'm accused or Christians are accused or Christian belief is accused of being like this. If I don't believe in Jesus, God is going to punish me by sending me to hell. I promise you, friends, that is not in this book. The idea that if we don't believe in Jesus, God will send us to hell is not in this book. Let me clarify that for you. We were already on our way there. We are already under that judgment for our sin. Jesus came so that we did not have to face that. But if we reject God's solution, if we reject God's grace and mercy, he's not punishing for us for that. The punishment just remains on us instead of being removed. This is not punishment for rejecting Jesus. This is not relinquishing punishment by allowing Jesus to take it is what it is. We have punishment already on us. The judgment's already been set. God is willing to take it from us in Jesus. And we can let him do that or cling to it and suffer the consequences. This is turning away from God's grace and mercy is this idea of rejecting Jesus and being condemned. Our condemnation is already sure. Jesus could either take it from us by his grace and mercy or we could refuse to allow him to do so. As far as God is concerned, he desires that everyone turn to him and everyone avail themselves of grace and mercy. In fact, God would be truly happy if not a single person in all of history, in all of creation, was, was apart from him for all of eternity. God wants everybody saved. How do I know that? Am I just making that up? Does that just sound like a good thing to believe? No, right out of the pages of scripture. 2 Peter 3.9 the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. It's that he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
Remember what we talked about with Israel and the wilderness? God wants to pour out grace and mercy, but there has to be an acknowledgement of one's sin and a turning to God, and he is happy to pour out grace and mercy. And that's what Peter is saying here. It's God's desire that no one perish, but everyone come to that point of repentance, acknowledgement of their own sin, turning back to God. This is God's heart. This is God's desire. We see it from Genesis to Revelation. So all of humanity contends with the same disease of sin. We've had it since the fall. And God loves us and has compassion on us as a father loves and has compassion on a child, a son or daughter who suffers from a terrible disease. God loves us and hates sin and what it does in our lives. And moved by his love, God desires to pour out grace and mercy. We tend to identify ourselves with our sin. I don't know. I, I, I'm not the only one. I know that's true. But we sin and we hate ourselves for it. We sin and we think God must be angry with us. God must hate us. Our value, our stock has gone down in God's eyes. Somehow we equate ourselves with our sin. And God doesn't do that. God looks at us and loves us, but hates our sin. And in his grace and mercy, he desires to purge that sin from our life. In this life, we journey through this process of sanctification, which is him weeding out that sin from our lives. And one day, as he promises, there will be a time when sin is no longer part of the picture. It's just us, the children, the son and daughters, sons and daughters that God has loved and redeemed. And so understand that. Moved by his love, God desires to pour out grace and mercy. And the ultimate example of this is in sending Jesus to die in our place, providing forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, healing, eternal life, and that future hope that we have. And whether or not we are recipients of God's grace and mercy depends upon us. Because God has done everything necessary to secure it for us. Whether or not we're recipients depends upon what we do. So what do we do? Do we, do we acknowledge our sin and turn to God? Or do we hide from God and persist in our sin? In fact, in the same passage in John 3, Jesus lays it right out there. This is the problem. This is God's solution because he loves you. Okay? But here's the reality of the human response. Here's what we see in verses 19 through 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. In other words, God is not clueless to our sin. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows every evil word, every evil thought, every evil deed that every human being in the history of the world has ever committed. It's really funny that there are those who understand this and will bring their sin into the light so that God can cure us of it, forgive us of it. And there are those of us who say, I'm going to hide over here and pretend that God doesn't see it. 
or persist in it because somehow I, I think that's better for me than coming and bringing it before God. We all have a choice with what to do. This is the decision before all of us, before Christians and non-Christians alike. Of course, there is that first point. When you hear the gospel, you recognize your own sin and what God has done for you. And in that moment, we choose to either accept it or reject it. And I look around the room today and I assume, uh, having known you all for uh, quite a bit of time, that everybody in this room, at least, has come to that point in their life where they heard the good news of the gospel. They heard what Jesus had done for them and they have received it. They have understood and repented. They have understood, they have confessed their sin and have desired God's grace and mercy that he offers to them in Jesus Christ. That if I'm wrong in my assumptions, then please, friends, don't let another day pass by without doing that. But even for those who accept God's grace and mercy in Jesus at that point where they commit their lives to him, that's not the end of the story. That's the first in a very long list of such moments that occur throughout our lives. I don't mean that your salvation is always a necessary, you know, you don't have to keep securing your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But that point of having to recognize our sin and turn to God in truth is something we all have to do. Look at Israel. They were already in God's covenant. God had covenanted with their ancestors. They were people of the promise. They were God's people. And yet they had a choice when they sinned to turn back to God in repentance or to keep him at arm's length. We have those choices all the time. I say that because we continue to wrestle with sin. And we have the same tendency to hide it. We have the same tendency to persist in it, to choose to keep it in the dark places, to entertain it in private. And this is not what we ought to do. This is not what God desires for us because God desires to pour out grace and mercy. But it requires us to bring it into the light, to bring it before him and to receive his gifts of grace and mercy. In fact, John, writing to Christians, says this in 1 John 1, 9, a passage you've heard from me many times. He says, if we confess our sins, us Christians, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, you and I still struggle with sin this side of eternity. That's okay. God doesn't hate you for it. God doesn't give up on you. God doesn't remove your salvation. He doesn't love you less. Again, he doesn't see you as your sin. He sees you as a child he loves, and he hates your sin and wants to help you purge it. So we have to first bring it into the light, confess it to him, and find that God is faithful, as he has always proven himself to be, and he will forgive us, and he will work that purification in our lives so that that sin no longer has a grip on us. He desires to pour out grace and mercy because he loves you.